Again, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath evening as we continue our series, What is the Church? I believe this is maybe sermon number four in this short series. Uh, we last, when we last considered this particular series, we spoke on the gifts, the privileges, and responsibilities of the members of the church. And just to recap very briefly, we learned that the church has the gift, the privilege, and the responsibility to participate in the regular worship with the saints, which is what we're doing this evening. We have the gift, responsibility, and privilege to submit to elders, to elect elders and deacons, to receive new members, to contribute to the church, to serve in the church, and finally, to participate in the discipline of the church. These are the gifts, privileges, and responsibilities of the members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, uh, those who are members of Christ's church have been blessed with these benefits. And since we've been blessed with them, we must exercise them in the, in the context of the local church. If you are a member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ then those points that I have briefly mentioned, they are the way that we live and they are the way that we function as a church. And now tonight, with God's help, we shall discuss the structure of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Specifically, if you're taking notes, the structure of authority within the church. The structure of authority within the church. Now, this is a, a very important matter because many of us, if not all of us, have come from a variety of church structures uh, where authority resides in some one or some other place other than the local church. Here are a few examples of churches with different church structures. Now, I asked in our uh, How to Study the Bible class, I asked this question. Who has the keys of authority in the church? Who has the keys of authority in the church? Consider these different structures of authority. Consider the Roman Catholic Church. Now, listen closely. The word Catholic, listen how I say this, we affirm the word Catholic in this church. Why? Because the word Catholic uh, in the Greek... It simply means universal or the whole. So when we, you may have heard us in the church here say before, uh, the church Catholic or the Catholic church. We affirm that there is a universal church. There is a body of Christ as a whole. Nothing wrong with that. So then where's the problem? When does the problem enter in? The problem enters when we add to Catholic Roman. When we say Roman or we attach the word Roman to Catholic, now we are speaking about a completely different church. We're speaking about the Roman Catholic Church. And there is a doctrine attached to that church that we deny as being biblical and we reject that those that we would reject and those who affirm Roman Catholic theology are not truly a part of the Catholic Church. And that sounds kind of strange, right? Those who affirm Roman Catholic theology are not a part of the universal body of Christ. 
Now, are there some in Roman Catholic churches who are saved? Yes. As long as they do not affirm the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, that's kind of weird, right? So let's pray that the Lord removes them out so that they can be saved. Consider uh, the structure now of the authority. Since we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church, what's the authority of the Roman Catholic Church? Or to ask it this way, who has the authority in the Roman Catholic Church? Who's the, the head of authority? The Roman Catholic Church teaches that the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, has authority over the entire church. Why? Because the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the Pope is the successor of Peter. That he is the head of the church. He is even, as of I think the last couple hundred years, been given the title of Vicar of Christ. Vicar of Christ meaning he is the earthly representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe that there is no communion with the true church apart from submitting to the authority of the Bishop of Rome. For a Roman Catholic, when the Pope says what the Pope says, you must obey. For when the Pope speaks, it were it was as if God himself were speaking in that church. The Pope is the magistrate. I'm going to use that word later. The Pope is the magistrate of the Roman Catholic Church. He's the... Here's, now, I'm going to say this at the end of the next few examples. He is the highest authority. And the Roman Catholic Church is governed by the Pope. Consider the Episcopalian Church. <clears throat> Their name is derived from the Greek, episkopos, meaning bishop, or meaning of a bishop, or of bishops. Episcopos, meaning of a bishop, or of bishops. The Episcopalian Church describes itself to be Protestant, yet Catholic. They believe in a governing authority, of bishops, hence the name episcopos, which means bishops. This stems from the Church of England, that's the uh, Episcopalian Church, breaking off from the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century and establishing their own archbishop and establishing their own parishes, their own priests. So they simply broke off from the Roman Catholic Church but kept the same kind of structure. Independently, they are governed by their archbishop, as well as regional bishops, perhaps not only by bishops, but there is a hierarchy that governs the church, and they are bishops. The bishops are the, here it is now, the bishops are the highest authority in the Episcopalian church, and they are governed by, or, and they govern the Episcopalian church. So the uh, bishops are the highest authority, and they govern the Episcopalian church. You with me? Consider now the Presbyterian Church. We would affirm that the Presbyterians are our brothers and our sisters. They affirm the gospel. They preach it just like we do. But in terms of church government, they have a completely different church government. They believe that the church is to be governed by presbyteries, which is a collection of elders in geographical regions. Each church has elders, just like we do, but those elders are ultimately under and accountable to a hierarchy of elders that are called a presbytery. And they meet at a general assembly 
every year to discuss the matters that are going on in these local churches and to make rulings about matters that are going on in local churches like ours. Here it is. The highest authority of the Presbyterian church is the Presbytery or ruling elders and they govern the Presbyterian church. Now, consider congregationalists. You've ever heard that word before? If you've been in this church, you have. A congregationalist believes that there is no higher church power as church power other than the local church. Congregationalists believe that the church itself governs itself. That it does not need, uh, that is, it does not need, uh, that does not mean that there are not elders in the church. But beyond the congregation, there is no higher authority. Are you with me? They, congregationalists, they reject the authority of the Pope. They reject the uh, authority of a collection of bishops. And they also reject the authority of presbyteries. They believe that the authority resides within the local church. Now, we may ask, well, what about Baptists? Anybody thinking that right now? Just me? Just so that you know, not all Baptists are created equally. Just because you meet someone and you say, I'm a Reformed Baptist, they go, I'm a Baptist too. And you say, high five, great. We're, just because someone says they're a Baptist doesn't mean that we all agree doctrinally on everything. Especially not automatically. We, we may agree that baptism is to be applied to believers only. But sometimes that is where our agreement ends. We are Reformed Baptists. Listen to these five C's. That means that we are covenantal. We are creedal. We are confessional. We are Calvinistic. And we are congregational. I'm going to say those again. We are covenantal. We are creedal. We are confessional. We are Calvinistic. And we are congregational. We reject any higher power as power over the local church. We believe that Christ has given the keys of the kingdom to the local church to govern itself. Now, why did we go to such great lengths to discuss some of these different kinds of churches and their structure of authority? The point was to show that the question of what is the structure or authority of the church, it's a very important matter. Because there are large churches that are separated, yes, by gospel, yes, by infant baptism, but initially by structure of authority. Who has authority in the church? Or who has the keys of the kingdom been given to? Some say the Pope. Some say a collection of bishops. Some say a presbytery. And some say the local church. What does Christ say? That's where we want to say. That's where we want to go. Brothers and sisters, <clears throat> this is our goal. Our goal is to determine what is the structure and authority of the church and the distribution of church authority that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to the church. Here's what I'm going to seek to argue tonight. I will argue that Christ has given all necessary power to individual churches for those churches to do what Christ has commanded for his church. I said that really fast, but I'll say it again. I'm going to argue that Christ has given all necessary power <clears throat> to individual churches for those churches to do what Christ has commanded for his church. Over the next two weeks, we will make the case that officers have been given authority and members have also been given authority. 
and also liberty to exercise what Christ has given them. In this sermon, we will discuss, discuss that Christ has given sufficient power to the church. And Christ has given sufficient authority to the officers of the church. Let's go to our first point. It's a long one, so I'll say it maybe two or three times. Number one, here's our first point. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ has given individual, individual churches sufficient authority to carry out all that he has commanded. I'll say it again. The Lord Jesus Christ has given individual local churches sufficient. That means enough. Enough authority to carry out all that he has commanded. Brothers and sisters, whatever a church has been commanded to do, here's the summary of that, it has been given the power and authority to do. Whatever the local church has been commanded to do, it has the power to do. Because it's been given the authority to do those things. If Christ has given a specific command to his church, then the church must obey it. And it does not need a higher power to ensure or to even empower the church to do those things. Does that make sense? The local church has been given commands. And it doesn't need a higher power to say, we are giving you authority to do those things. Nor does it need a, a higher power to come and to ensure that we do those things. The church has been given all authority by Christ to do those things that he's commanded. Can we prove this from the scriptures? I'm glad you asked. Yes. Yes, we can, actually. All of our arguments must always be rooted in scripture. And we must be able to do so in a very thorough manner. So, with that said, let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> for those of you who are ever, ever asked to make a case for congregationalism, say Matthew 16, Matthew 18. Matthew 16, Matthew 18. Those are easy words, hopefully, for you to remember. We pick up here in Matthew chapter 16, where Peter has confessed Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Christ affirms Peter's confession and says this in verse 18 of chapter 16. <clears throat> I'm going to say this. Uh, I'm going to start at verse 17. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who was in heaven. Verse 18. Now, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever, ask yourselves if you've heard this before. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You've ever heard that before? If you've grown up in my context, you sure have. Christ has said that he would build his church upon the rock. Now, let's, let's walk through this together, right? Christ says, I will build my church upon this rock. Who's the rock? Well, what's Peter's real name? I thought it was Peter. What's his real name? What does Jesus always say to him? Especially when he was, re when he was rebuking him for speaking on behalf of Satan. What does he call him? Simon, Simon. Cephas, Cephas, right? And he says, based upon your confession, Cephas, you are now Petros. Petros meaning rock. And I will build my church upon that rock. And the gates of hell will not prevail against that confession. Now, what kind of confession has the rock made? 
What kind of confession has Peter the rock? What kind of, he was the original rock. What, what kind of confession has Peter made? That was not revealed to him by flesh and blood, but by God himself. Peter's heart has been transformed, right? He's been given eyes to see. And with these new eyes, he makes a positive confession about Christ. Jesus, he says, you are the Christ, actually. The son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are your eyes. Blessed is your heart. Blessed is your mind. Because no one has told you this. God has revealed this to you. And what does he confess? That, That Christ is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the seed who would come and crush the head of the serpent. He says also, at the same time, you're the son of God. As Pastor Zay said uh, a few weeks ago, that which God uh, uh, is begotten of God is God. So in saying you are the son of God, he is saying you are God. Right? He's, he's affirming you are the God-man. You are the Savior who has come to rescue and redeem, and you are also God in the flesh. And does Jesus say, no, you're wrong? This is for those who say Jesus never claimed to be God. He says, you are blessed for saying such a thing. And it was this positive confession concerning Christ that would become what one must confess if they are to be considered a true believer or a true confessor. If you are to be a true confessor, you must confess he's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. And for the one who made that true confession, that positive confession concerning Christ, they would be counted among the number. Now, who have we learned the the number is? The church. Now, follow. Christ said that he would build his church upon that confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he says, and I give to you the keys of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. If you say to Peter, if you say, well, Peter, you have the keys. You have all of the power, all of the authority. If that's how you read the scripture, then you're a Roman Catholic. If you say, well, Peter stands in the place of all the elders as an apostle of the church. Well, then you're a Presbyterian. If you say that Peter stands in the place of the apostles, successors, and the bishops, or or the apostles, successors, the bishops, then you're an Episcopalian. If you say that Peter stands in the place of the church, representing the church, and the scriptures will become more and more clear as scripture further reveals itself, then that's the direction that we're heading in, and we're on the same page. He says, I will give you, look at your Bible where it says you. I will give you, because we're asking who has the power, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Therefore, it must be Peter, right? Well, no. Because the you there is plural. And we must remember that Peter was not the only one standing there when Jesus spoke and made this statement. There are other apostles who are standing there and they would be, as the Bible says, the foundation of the church. They would be the foundation of the church. Their teachings, Christ and their teachings would be the foundation, and the prophets would be the foundation of the church. Now, listen to this. I, I think this is important. I believe it's fair to confess. It is not immediately clear from Matthew chapter 16 what the keys of the kingdom, or even the binding and loosing meant. And it's also probably fair to say Peter, most likely, would not have immediately understood what this meant. These are new phrases, binding and loosing and keys of the kingdom, but it's something that would be understood as Scripture progressed. 
So then, where does Christ give more insight into the, the meaning of this statement? What's the other verse I told you to memorize? Yeah, so it's Matthew 16, Matthew 18. Matthew 18, let's go there. <clears throat> Yet another passage, <clears throat> verse 15. Yet another passage that shows us that the church exercises the authority of the keys. The church has been given authority to exercise the keys of the kingdom and needs no greater authority. How do we know that? Well, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, concerning church discipline and the authority that has been invested or vested into the church. Verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he has not listened to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Now listen to this. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to who? The church. And if he refuses to listen even to the who? The church, almost as a final uh, judgment, let him be to you, the church, a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, truly, I say to you, listen to his words again, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Notice. The same language that was used in Matthew 16 is being used again in Matthew 18. This language of binding and loosing. What's happening? The Lord Jesus is further explaining something that he has taught previously. And what is he using to further explain what he means by by chapter 16? He's using church discipline. He's using church discipline to show that authority has been vested ultimately not into the Pope, Not into a presbytery, not into a collection of bishops, not into a gospel coalition, but to the local church. Not some other entity, not some other power structure outside the local church, but to the local church. That is to say that the church has been given authority to exercise the keys of the kingdom and no one else needs to give them authority or to exercise, uh, to give them authority to exercise the authority that has been given to them by Christ. Again, not a presbytery, not a bishop, uh, not a pope, not not an association of churches. But Jesus has given authority to the local church. He has given out this binding and loosing. We're going to get to that in a moment, but it's, it's an opening and closing. That Christ has given the church the authority to open and the authority to close. We'll explain more about what that is in just a moment. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's explain this more. Again, speaking about church discipline, how uh, do we see this practice in the local church in the scriptures anywhere? Yes, we do. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The church is called to exercise, to utilize the keys of the kingdom. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. In in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm sorry. It's it's in verse one, chapter five, verse one. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. And immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned. Instead, 
so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. And he says, for I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, there's the authority, I have decided to deliver, that's inserted, deliver such a one over to Satan for destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of destruction. The church has assembled with the power of Jesus to expel from their midst an unrepentant member. And Paul is saying to the individuals of that church, do what Christ has commanded. The individual has not repented. Remove him from your midst. Remove the unrepentant member. They are opening the door. Paul is calling them to obey scripture. Is he uh, enforcing it? No, he's calling them to do it. It's not Paul is the overseer. Paul is calling them to do something that they should be doing. They should do it. Open the door of the kingdom, as it were. And as hard as it is, as difficult as this is, see that person out the door. That is the binding and loosing. Binding and loosening. They are opening and closing. They are binding and loosing based upon the criteria of Scripture, the commands of Scripture, and the power of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is uh, what Jesus has commanded from Matthew 18 and 16 in practice. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6. In this passage... Here we will see that the church is not expelling, not opening to remove, but opening the door to restore, to bring the repentant brother back into the church. Second Corinthians chapter two, verses six through eight. <clears throat> Let's start in verse five. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order to say, in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient for such is a punishment is I'm sorry, for sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. That means that the majority made a ruling on this individual so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Again, we see that the church, the majority, it forgives The majority also comforts. The majority is also reaffirming. The majority is also restoring this person to its membership. It is the church who is able and equipped to do this uh, this act, this opening of the door and welcoming the brother back in. What do we conclude from this? We conclude that Jesus Christ has given sufficient power to the local church to do everything that the church is commanded to do as the church. What is there that Jesus Christ has commanded for us to do that we cannot do for ourselves? We have sufficient power from Christ to fulfill all the commands of Christ. The church possesses the keys of the kingdom. Uh, This is not the members only or the elders only. But we mean the church consisting of officers and members together. That's what, what, what we are. The Apostle Paul makes it clear in his letter to the church of Philippi. And when he says in, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, 
saints with overseers and deacons. When Paul writes to a church, he says, that's what you are. You are saints with overseers. The Lord Jesus Christ has entrusted the keys of the kingdom to the church, which consists of officers and members. Therefore, we deny that any other entity other than officers and members can have the keys of the kingdom. We then eliminate Presbyterians or not Presbyterians, but the Presbyterian structure of church. Roman Catholics, Episcopalians, Anglicans, uh, megastar pastors. Uh, again, whatever coalition you want to attach yourself to as well. We grew up, I grew up in a church structure where there was one person who was in charge in the church. And although we were not a part of the Roman Catholic Church, the church functioned as if there was at least one pope in the church. And whatever he said, we must do. And if you got out of line, then you're in trouble with the pope. He made the rules. He was the final authority. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has entrusted the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom to the church. The church consists of officers and members. Christ has given the keys of his house to his bride, the church. Now let us move on to our second point, which will have a few subpoints. Officers possess and exercise authority in the local church. Officers possess and exercise authority in the local church. We've made the case that the Lord Jesus Christ has given the keys of the kingdom, the keys of uh, his authority to local churches. And now we're going to distinguish between the different roles. Here's a big word or jurisdictions within the church. The different roles of authority or jurisdictions of authority within the church. That's that's an important word if you're taking notes. The different jurisdictions of authority within the local church. As the Apostle Paul stated to the church of Philippi, and therefore to all churches, the church consists of overseers, officers, and members. Overseer, officer, pastor, elder, same thing, and members. So when I say the word officer, I am saying uh, elder, pastor, deacon. Those are all the same thing, okay? Officers. Officers have a certain authority. And members have a certain authority. In this particular sermon and this point, we're going to focus on the authority of officers. And in the next sermon, we're going to zero in on the authority of members, all right? The ordinary and continual officers of the church are elders and deacons. The ordinary and continual officers of the church are elders and deacons. The Lord Jesus has given the keys of the kingdom to the local church. Now listen, and he has so ordered his church that he has entrusted elders with authority to lead. And members have also been entrusted with an authority to make a final judgment or ruling. Elders lead, members rule. That's a congregational model of church. But these two work together. The elders, deacons, and the members. They are not to contradict one another. They are also not to be in conflict with one another. The officers possess and exercise the keys of authority in a certain way. Officers do this. Notice that officers... The offices of elder and deacon have been given authority from Christ himself. So who gives the elder deacon, who gives him authority? Christ does. The authority of the office comes from Christ, who is the head of the church. Listen, 
as opposed to what? Or as opposed to authority coming from where? As opposed to authority coming from somewhere or someone or something other than Christ. Authority does not uh, reside first in someone other than Christ. It resides first in Christ who then gives that authority to those whom he has chosen. The office or authority does not derive from the congregation. We as officers don't receive authority from you. We receive authority from Christ first. We don't receive it from a pope, a presbytery, or any other outside entity. The congregation does not grant authority or invest power in the office of the elder. Does that make sense? The church does not grant authority or vest the power of authority in the office of elder. It is the Lord Jesus Christ to invest power in the office of elder to do what he has been called to do. But this is where authority of the members is vital because members have been charged with the authority and responsibility to elect officers of the church. The church does not authorize authors, uh, officers of the church. Officers have been have their authority not from men, but from God. Uh, Their authority is not by men. It's from Christ. It's not by men. It's from men, if we could say it that way. It is by the consent and election of the church that someone reaches the office, but it is by and from the Lord Jesus Christ that the power of authority of that office is possessed and exercised. Ultimately, we receive our authority from Christ. And the church will recognize that authority and elect one to that office. But it begins with Christ. Elders and deacons have authority in the local church. But it's not from the local church. It's from Christ. Our confession states in chapter 26, 8. A particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. And the officers, listen, appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church. Appointed by Christ and then elected and chosen by the church. That makes sense? The members have the liberty and authority of choosing, of calling and electing officers. But it is first, it is first Christ who elects. First Christ who elects that one to that office and gives that officer that authority. Where do we see that in the scriptures? For those who have that office, here are the ways in which you are to function in that office. Here's the authority that's been given to you in that office. Uh, Now, part of this is called what is known as the internal and external call. A man believes that he is called by Christ. And if so, the church will affirm that calling. That is the internal, I believe I'm called by Christ, and the church recognizing it, external call. The question is, what has Jesus Christ authorized these officers to do? What has Christ given officers the authority to do if we have our authority from christ what authority has he given us to do what these are the sub points sub point number one officers have authority to rule and order or order and rule officers have the authority to order and rule now you should ask yourself this what does it mean to order and what does it mean to rule order is to ensure that things And those things being the ministry of the word are done rightly. Officers have the authority to ensure that 
things and those things being the ministry of the word are done rightly. The elders order worship of the saints when we gather on the day appointed by Christ. What's that day? I like to pause every now and then because that wakes you up. Oh, he's talking to me. What's the day that has been appointed by Christ for us to worship? The Lord's day. The officers have been charged with the authority and responsibility to order religious life. So then we are to set baptism in order. The Lord's Supper in order. Singing, reading, preaching, praying in the church, giving in the church. These are all things that the elders have been charged to set in order in the church. We see the qualifications for an elder in the New Testament. And in Paul's instructions to Timothy and Titus, uh, he's instructing them to oversight, spiritual oversight, and to ordering of the church. This is the responsibility, here's the word again, or the jurisdiction of the elders. This is our responsibility. Turn to Acts chapter 20. (coughs) Acts chapter 20. Excuse me. And verse 28. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Paul gives some instructions to the Ephesian elders as he says goodbye to them. And we need to ask ourselves, what does Paul tell them is their job? He's calling them to a particular responsibility. And what does he say is their job? What does he say they are to have oversight of? Verse 28. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among you, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. These elders oversee and care for the church. What should they be concerned about? What should they be concerned about? We see in other scriptures and other commands that to be aware of a divisive person. And have nothing to do with them. We see that they are to make sure that people uh, obey all the words that are written in the epistles in this letter. They are also to be concerned with looking out for those who are deceiving others. They are to watch out for wolves who are among the the sheep. They are to shepherd the flock, to oversee their lives spiritually. And they are also to be concerned with ordering the religious life of the saints of the church. They have oversight of what will and what will not be taught in the church. This is why we don't ask you, what would you like to hear this Sunday? This is not McDonald's. This is not Burger King, to use the old adage. Uh, You you cannot have it your way. We preach God's word. We We preach the full counsel of God's word. And it is also our jurisdiction to determine what is to be taught. What is biblical? What is not biblical? We have been given this authority by Christ to combat the wolves who come after the sheep with what? False teaching. Elders are to ensure that what is taught is in accordance with God's word. And members are to keep us accountable to that. This is also true for our hymns and our prayers and our sermons. It is a responsibility of the elders to feed and protect the church. And we also have the authority to rule. Now think about that. That's a a harsh word. What do you mean rule? What does it mean? Well, what does the Bible say in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7? Submit to your elders. Obey them. 
Here we see that there is an obedience due to the elders and we see a responsibility for oversight of the souls of the sheep. It, and listen to this. It's not just the doctrinal life of the believer that we are shepherds over. It's also the practical life of the believer that the elders are keeping watch over. Now, you may say, what do you mean the practical life? Well, don't we have any practical implications or application when we preach? Don't we say, here's how you live that out? We don't just say theologically what these things mean. Theologically, they mean something that apply to us practically. If they don't apply to us practically, and we are not able to shepherd that practical application, then what are we doing here? Then what are we doing here? It's an important issue. What we teach from the scriptures must be obeyed. Because it's God's word. We're not teaching our opinions. We go to great lengths to make sure that what we teach is rooted in God's word and not in our own personal agendas. Not even in our own personal traditions, but God's word. When there are practical applications to what has been taught, it is your elders' responsibility to shepherd you even in those particular practical areas. This is how to live this out in your marriage. So then when the word of God is preached, I'll say, well, how is that working in your marriage? We can't say, well, you're not allowed. You have no jurisdiction here. It's my marriage. You have nothing to do with it. Are we not shepherds over your souls? And is not marriage a part of your spiritual life? Yes. We may say, this is how this applies to your parenting. And we come to you and say, well, how is this applying to you? How is this working out in your, with your kids? And you can get out of my business. You, you have no jurisdiction here. Well, of course we do. We're to keep you accountable to how you shepherd your children. Of course we do. Now, there are certain areas of your life that, that are obviously out of our out of our jurisdiction. But there are many areas that are perfectly in our jurisdiction. This is how this applies in your workspace or at school. And we should welcome our elders, welcome their insight, welcome their, their knowledge and their experience into all of those areas of our lives. Otherwise, why do we even call them our overseers? Why do we even call them our shepherds if we won't even let them in? If that's the case, join a megachurch where no one will, will ever know you or have any oversight over you. Uh, it, you. You can be... You're in a church where everybody knows your name. Everybody's glad you came. At least, I hope. It, it's kind of like Cheers, right? It, it's... I want to, I don't remember what the song is called, but you might know what the song is called. I don't know why I pointed to you, but you want to go somewhere where everybody knows your name. Everybody's glad you came. If you don't want that, then join a church where nobody knows your name. Ask, ask yourself, uh, those of you who are a part of a big church, do they know that you're gone? Has, even, has anybody even asked for you? That's not oversight. That's not oversight. There must be a level of trust in those whom Christ has appointed as shepherds over your souls. I trust you with this information. I trust that you can help me with this information. If not, then what am I doing here? Christ has given authority to officers of the church to oversee your souls. Also, uh, second point, 2-2 two, two, two or 2-B, officers have ministerial not magisterial authority. Officers have ministerial, not magisterial authority over your souls, over the church. The authority of the elder does not reside in the person, 
but the office. The office. That means that we are ministers. We are not magistrates. What's a magistrate? It's one who makes laws. And you must obey because they have said so. We are not magistrates. With ministerial authority, we have no authority to make up what you are to believe or what you're to practice. There is no authority that resides in us to generate laws that you must abide by because we said so. That's kind of in your home. Kind of, right? But not in the local church. Rather, as ministers, we receive laws and promises from Christ, God's word. And we deliver those promises, those laws, to the people of Christ. And here's what we do. We keep you accountable to what Christ has said. This is why when Pastor Zay said this morning, when he taught Lord's Day Sabbath, this was not a, a, a something that, that, honestly, we thought of and said, hey, that's a good idea. My, my brother, uh, and I'll tell on him a little bit, before we were people who observe the Lord's Day as we do, as Sabbatarians, he would leave church right after morning services before we're Sabbatarians and go to L.A. and enjoy the day. Do you think that someone wants to take away from that freedom or at least that, that, that opportunity to say, hey, I can just go to L.A. today. See ya. No. How many of you would like to just go to L.A. for the rest of the day? Go to the beach. Go to Santa Monica. Go eat some fish and chips. I would like that. But there is a greater, a greater responsibility that I have to God's word and not my own feelings, not my own traditions, not the things that make me enjoy my life a lot better. If it's God's word and God says this is good for you, it's better for you than that trip to L.A., you'll save yourself a speeding ticket, you'll save yourself some money. It's nothing to do with all those things. It's Christ has given us this day, and my wife corrected me on this the other day, as a reminder as a foreshadow of what has been laid up for you in glory and that that which is yours when this is all over. It is a day of worship. It is a day of rest that points to the ultimate day of worship, day of rest where there will be no end. So when we come, we are symbolically enjoying that which is laid up for us forever. Well, gosh, if that's the case, then there is nothing that can compare His city is L.A. Mine is San Francisco. But it is nothing in comparison to the city of God. Which is ours. Which is ours. And today we get a foretaste of that. So enjoy it. All that to say, who wants to make something up? Just to add more to the people of God. If it's God's word, then let's do it. If it's not God's word, then let's forsake it. But if it's God's word, let's do it. Let's enjoy it because God has put it there for our good, for our growth, for our sanctification, for our preparation of being with him in the new creation. We have been entrusted to ensure that the commands of Christ are followed and obeyed. And sometimes when we have not come from that kind of background where ministers are in our mail, it makes us uncomfortable, right? It makes us say, this is weird for me. I'm not used to someone telling me what I should be accountable to, what I should not be accountable to. And sometimes we go off and do things without telling anyone because we've not yet learned what it means to be accountable to elders, to be accountable to officers of the church. And we must learn that. The sooner we learn it, the better. 
for our souls, the better. Ministers have ministerial authority, not magisterial authority. We do not order and rule what we want to order and rule because we want it that way. We order and rule in accordance to what God has said. Listen, in 3 John, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this man. His name is Diopatris. You ever heard of him? He's in the very end of the book of 3 John. He's right in the back. You don't need to turn there, but when you get a chance. And what is John's, uh, what is John's comment about him? It is this. He loves to put himself first. He doesn't acknowledge the authority of elders. Listen to what he also does. He puts out of the church those who he wants to put out of the church. For those of you who say, Pastor, don't excommunicate me. That's, I don't have authority to do that. The church will do that. I might recommend it, but ultimately they have the final say. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't get to put out who I want to put out or put, put in who I want. It's not my job. Diopatries puts out those who he wants to put out, receives those who he wants to receive, and doesn't receive those who he, want, he doesn't want to receive. What kind of church structure is that? Where does authority lie in that church structure? It lies in one man, Diopatries, who was a precursor to the Pope. And John is saying, that's wrong. John saying it's wrong, and John opposed it as wrong because it's magisterial authority. Diopatries is saying, you do what I say because I said it. That's wrong. You obey me because I, I said it. While ministerial authority says, you must obey this because this is what God says. And we must all obey it. I'm trying to obey it too. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-3, through 3, we see elders called to act in this ministerial way. There is true and real authority that's vested in the office of the church. In particular, elders. But it is not their authority. It's the authority of Christ, which they have been called to exercise in the local church. Third subpoint, and finally, members cannot possess or exercise authority that's been given to the elders. That would mean that they are out of their jurisdiction. This should not be surprising because there's a distinct line between members and elders, but they work in conjunction with each other. That's the line of jurisdiction that I'm speaking of. The elders have a responsibility, and the members also have their responsibility. The membership has the authority and liberty to elect and consent to officers and members, but membership does not have the authority of officers unless they are called to the work of the office of the church. What are we saying we can't do? What's the line of jurisdiction then? If the members do not have the authority of officers, what are we saying members can't do? Members, it would be wrong out of the members' jurisdiction to say, hey, guys, come over to my house tonight. We're going to have Lord's Supper at my house. You would be out of line, out of your jurisdiction. You don't have the authority to order religious life. It would be wrong for a member to say, hey, guys, today we're having baptism at my house. I'll be baptizing all you guys. You're out of your jurisdiction. You're out of order. There are things that have been given uh, that we, that you have been given jurisdiction over. And things that officers have been given jurisdiction over. And the two, they work together, not against one another. Things that officers do by authority, members may also do by charity. Listen to, uh, 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 and this is what, this is what John Owen explained. 
It's that praying, instructing, admonishing, and ex- John Owen is like the stamp of approval of congregational lists, by the way. Praying, instructing, admonishing, exhorting one another are all things that should be, that we should be more than willing and available to do. If someone comes to you and says, uh, brother, can you pray with me? Or, brother, I, I was reading this passage. What do you think about this passage? You, can't, you should not say, oh, no, 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 no. Don't ask me. I'm not an elder. And I'm not a deacon. That's not my jurisdiction. I'm sorry, brother. I would love to, but I just cannot. There's nothing wrong with that. That's your charitable act toward your brother. You can do those things. Insofar as you are faithful to the scriptures and and in concert with what the church is teaching, you're not out of order. It's when you say, hey, Zay, come here real quick. What? Come here. What is it? Everything that Pastor uh, Antonio was talking about, it's a lie. This is what the Bible actually means. Hey, Hey, what are you guys doing over there? Oh, nothing, Pastor. Just talking. Come here. And you know what he said about that? You know what I'm doing right now? I'm showing you what's, what's been done in this church before. That's out of order. That's out of order. If you hold a weekly Bible study at your house with guys just coming over just to read the Bible, that's great. We can't stop you from doing those things. It's when you start to now become the leader of that Bible study. When you now offer Q&A in that Bible study. When you are now acting as an overseer of that little Bible study, now you're out of order because no one has called you to that, to that position. No one is, And that's why we say we will not recognize those who have left and say, all of a sudden, yeah, I'm going to have a Bible study at my church, at my house. It's turning into a church now. That's out of order. You have then appointed yourself teacher of the church. And that's wrong. Is it wrong to learn together? No. It's wrong when one person stands up and says, but I'm the leader now. Now you're self-appointed. And now you're out of order. This is countercultural. Let me tell you, I confess it's countercultural. Why? Because yeah, probably about five years ago, yeah, maybe five, I was just on the cusp of it. But especially six or seven years ago, I believe that everyone was a minister. Uh, as R.C. Sproul would say, every believer a theologian. That we were all theologians. That we were all pastors in a sense. I even used to, when we, we would have baptism, let members baptize other members. I was wrong. I was out of order. But mostly because I didn't understand the jurisdictional lines between members and officers. And I blurred them to where there was no jurisdictional line. And that's not the way Christ has ordered his church. Everyone is not a minister in the same sense for everyone. There are those who have been called and appointed to a ministerial office. You can uh, be a charitable help, a gospel-loving help to others, but does not make you a minister in the sense that I've been called to the ministry. And it doesn't make me better than you because I'm a minister and you happen to not be. You have a responsibility and I have a responsibility, and the two work together, not against one another. It's not varsity and frost-off. We are all on the same team together. Every member does not have a ministry. We must distinguish between officers and members. The Bible says, let not many of you become teachers. Uh, I was speaking to uh, a friend the other day. 
<clears throat> you know how hard it is to be a pastor? <laughs> you know how hard it is to shepherd people? You know how hard it is to prepare? It takes someone who's called to that. It takes someone who's called to that. And trust me, if you're not called to it, don't run in that direction unless you are called to that. Enjoy the membership because you have a heavy responsibility as well. And, and I say, I, as a member along with you, that's also a difficult thing at times. Being a member also is a difficult thing at times. But we work together for the good of the church. <clears throat> Just as we would not baptize, hold the Lord's Supper, discipline on our own. We must be careful not to appoint ourselves as teachers of the church. The main point is the authority of the church resides in the office of elders. Uh, let me say that again. The main point is that the authority of the, of the offices of the church, of the office of the elder, resides in that office. Let me say that again so you guys think I messed it up. The main point is that the authority of the office of elder resides in that office, not in the person itself. That makes sense. <laughs> if you are not in that office, you cannot assume that authority. Can you go on a picnic with uh, the other members? Please do those things. Enjoy the hot summer Bakersfield heat or winter or spring, whatever. But members cannot violate the office of overseer and vice versa. Uh, I was thinking of, of an example, but many of you guys don't know Superman uh, 3 with the one with Richard Pryor in it. It's one I watched over and over again because it's a good Superman and a bad Superman. They fight each other. It's just awesome. But I'll leave that for another time. But think about a, a, a missile that needs to be fired. And there are two keys that need to be turned at the same time in order for that missile to be fired. Think of that as the way that authority functions in the local church. Members have their authority. Elders have their authority. But they must turn them at the same time in order for the church to function in the way that Christ has called this church to function. That's the binding and loosing. Respect and submit to your elder and to their authority. If the office is uh, invested with authority... And if they are operating in, in it correctly, then submit to it with joy. Don't make it difficult because that will be no, of, of no benefit to you. Uh, a disrespect and contempt for elders is something we must guard our hearts against. Really. A disrespect and contempt for our elders is something we must guard our hearts against. And if there is any ought that we have toward our elders, go to them. Talk to them. Don't. I said this to a, a family that, I, that we met with over the weekend. There was once a time when a man had a difficulty, had difficulty with a particular doctrine. And rather than coming and speaking to his elders about that difficulty with that doctrine, he was in another city. Met a completely, uh, someone he didn't know from Adam. A stranger, Right? stranger happened to be a believer and he shared more with that stranger about his difficulty with a particular doctrine than he ever shared with the elders how do you expect your shepherds to shepherd you if you will not open up to them and if there is any way that you feel that we have not allowed ourselves to be people that you can come to then come and tell us that as well I would love to speak to you but here's something that's prevented me let's work on that but nothing happens when no one says anything. we got to work together. In order for the church to function the right way, the two keys must be turned at the same time. 
All shepherds, we ultimately, although we have authority, we point to the ultimate authority, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in us. Not in us. We are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. It's not in us. It is in Christ. Keep us accountable to that. As we seek to keep each other accountable to that. Christ has given you, the church, a wonderful blessing, a wonderful gift, the local church. You don't have to worry about one overseer, the Pope. You don't have to worry about a collection of bishops or a presbytery. All that Christ has given is sufficient for his local church to act and to live and to do the things that he has called, commanded us to do. Amen. Let's pray.